support for Unscripted comes from the Partnership for Transparency, a group of volunteer international development specialists. They work to advance good governance in developing countries by supporting civil society organizations. PTF believes governments alone can't be expected to stop corruption. Their latest research shows that well-designed, citizen-led programs to strengthen transparency and accountability can produce better outcomes than state-led initiatives. PTF's report has practical recommendations for how empowered, engaged, and professional non-government actors can advance Sustainable Development Goal 16. To read the report or learn more about PTF's work, visit ptfund.org. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted. Today, Royals, President Mahmoud Abbas of the State of Palestine, and President Trump's advisor, Jared Kushner, go to the Security Council during Belgium's presidency. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. This month, a royal family comes to the UN. And no, it's not Meghan and Harry on their first North American tour after Mexit. It's the royal family of Belgium. King Philippe and Queen Mathilde making their first appearance ever before the UN Security Council. Belgian ambassador Mark Pixtine de Boutsuir said it. The country is sending a high-level delegation to the UN for the country's only presidency as an elected member of the council. But they're not the only high-level representative visiting the UN this month. No, and they're likely not going to be the ones in the spotlight either. After U.S. President Trump announced what his administration calls a peace plan on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, which we'll call the Middle East plan, all the journalists here want to know what's next. And this month, there's a lot happening at the U.N. on the proposed plan. President Trump has been promising what he calls the deal of the century since he was elected, and the 80-page document took three years to finish. He released the long-awaited plan at what some see as a strategic time. Both he and his strongest ally in the Middle East, Israeli President Benjamin Netanyahu, are facing re-election this year amidst political turmoil at home. The next step for the Trump administration is to convince the UN that this is the right approach for the region. Yes, and Trump's advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who is the architect, is coming to the UN. Palestinian President Abbas is also expected on February 11th. And Abbas could cross paths with the Belgian king and queen, who will attend a briefing on children and armed conflict, while also going to a Broadway show, West Side Story, because two of the producers are from Belgium. Really? I didn't know that. But off-Broadway, Belgium will definitely preside over some very tense meetings at the UN. The U.S. peace plan is controversial, and members of the council have had very different perspectives on the matter. Most of them are backing the Palestinians' long quest to be a sovereign nation. But before we dig into the details, Stephanie, you met with the Belgian ambassador to get his take on the month ahead. Yes, we met in Belgium's mission to the UN in New York City. It's a five-minute walk to the UN, and they're known for having very good quiches and pastries in the office. I'd say the biggest disappointment we had when we met was that we were all francophones in the room, but couldn't do the interview in French. Oui, bien sûr. 
So the ambassador was appointed in 2016 in the midst of Belgium's campaign to get a seat on the Security Council. He's been posted literally all over the world, in Argentina, Austria, China, Pakistan, and Rwanda. I mean, that's a lot of different continents. He's also worked as director to the Minister of Foreign Affairs. So, Stephanie, you asked him how these experiences prepared him to be the ambassador here at the UN. Yeah, the UN job encompasses working with all of the countries he's worked in and many more. Well, I think it gives, you know, an exposure to, well, different cultures, uh, different way of looking at things, at situations. And I think that really gives, you know, an extra dimension to a work here, uh, where indeed, as you say, we are in contact with all countries of the planet. But to have been in some of these countries and really, you know, immersed in another culture, I think that gives, uh, you know, a plus to our multilateral relationship here. Mm -hmm. So I was actually quite happy to have this mix of multilateral experience, because this is actually my second time in, at the UN, mm -hmm. but also having served in, uh, in bilateral embassies in different countries, and as, you're, as you said, in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa. So indeed, it gives quite uh, interesting perspective. So he's had a long career, and we like to ask ambassadors the one accomplishment they are the most proud of. And the Belgian ambassador's answer was appealing to me because I could for sure relate. While ambassadors often talk about, you know, the big treaty they sign or the tough negotiation they won, the Belgian ambassador talked about that time he had to replace his boss when he was a junior and he didn't feel all that ready to do it. When I was in Pakistan, I was, I was still a very young diplomat and... Uh, It was the time where we still had uh, EU presidencies where the local embassy was uh, really presiding over the EU. And my ambassador had to suddenly uh, leave. And then I was just, you know, chargé d'affaires uh, <laughs> as a young diplomat in uh, yeah, my 30s. So I was sharing the group of ambassadors of the EU with very senior diplomats like the UK ambassador in Pakistan. You can imagine, you know, very senior guy. And so I was there and I, I stayed alone for four months with this EU presidency. For me, it was a fantastic opportunity, of course. So I learned many things. So for me, it was fantastic. So that's certainly one uh, I, I recall mm -hmm. vividly, but oh, well, so many others, it's difficult to choose really. <laughs> you didn't make any big mistake as a young diplomat? Uh, I'm sure I did, <laughs> but maybe nobody noticed. <laughs> but it looks like he did pretty well for himself. He got this ambassadorship at a crucial time for Belgium at the UN, while the country was trying to get a coveted seat on the Security Council. So we asked him about the campaign and what he thought was instrumental to getting elected. Well, I think, you know, the campaign, there are m many aspects to it. But mm -hmm. certainly the one we do here in New York is really based mainly on the personal contacts with all our colleagues. Mm -hmm. And that's so important. So takes a lot of time, you go and, and see them, each of them individually, and you talk about you know, their priorities at the UN, what they feel is important at the UN, how can we you know, help them to reach that, how can we contribute in the Security Council. And it takes time, but it's also so interesting because I, in, during that process, I would also 
learn many things uh, about precisely, you know, how these countries see first the action of the Security Council in, in some regions, for instance. So that was really, really good. And, and I think these personal relations, these are really key. You know, that's actually the core business of a diplomat when you think about it. It is really establishing trusts, you know, uh, relationship where you, you can really have trust in each other. And that's what we need also in, in the Security Council. And I'm sure Belgium didn't struggle too much to get the European vote out at the UN General Assembly. Brussels, the capital of Belgium, is also the capital of the EU. So Belgium's identity in the council that includes its voting pattern is deeply entrenched in Europe. We asked the ambassador how this central spot in the EU shapes Belgium's foreign policy, especially here at the UN. The EU dimension is very important in our approach to the Security Council. For us, it's you know DNA, uh, this EU dimension, of course, being as you said, at the center, <laughs> a capital of Europe, it's very important, and and that's at the center for experience uh, after World War Two, how to establish peace in Europe after so many bloody wars in Europe. The only way was regional integration. So this is something really we value extremely. And so, yes, we really try in the Council to have this EU dimension. There are five EU countries right now in the Council, so that's, that's a lot, a uh, third of the membership. Mm-hmm. So we really try to coordinate uh, very, very closely, uh, to speak maybe not with, let's say, one voice, because we all speak in the Council, but with the same message. And that is something I think we are achieving. And that's probably quite uh, a progress uh, compared, you know, over the years. I think we are really making progress in, in that um, EU cooperation in the Security Council. For instance, sometimes on some issues where we feel this is really important that the EU speaks with one voice that mm-hmm. time, outside of the Council room, uh, we go the five together and uh, we make a statement to the press, so stake out. And that's a way to very concretely expressing this, that we have one similar position on you know, mm-hmm. that issue. But there's now an empty chair of sorts with the EU delegation, and somewhere in Brussels, the Union Jack has been lowered. Brexit has finally happened more than three years after the Leave campaign won. So something we and lots of UN observers have been watching is how Britain will interact with its European colleagues on the council. Just last week, when we sat down with him, the Belgian ambassador mentioned five European members on the council. France, Belgium, Germany, Estonia, and Britain. But now there are only four. So we asked him how he felt about Brexit. Yeah, well, first, I think, I think uh, we're all very sad here. Um, also, all UK colleagues. So there they, they were some uh, very emotional uh, moments uh, today and, and, uh, and yesterday. But I think we will continue to work very closely together. And our UK colleagues are, are saying it. Of course, they, they are leaving the EU, but they, rem- they remain European. Mm-hmm. They keep the same values. And we all know these values right now are rather, you know, under attack, under threat. And so it's really the time to work together, all of us. And I think the fact that they are not in the EU anymore doesn't make a difference. Mm 
So on human rights, on justice, fight against impunity, all these issues, I think we will keep acting uh, very closely together. Mm -hmm. uh, but do you feel like it's you know the diplomats who want that or the the British people? Well, I think of course the diplomats for sure, but but I think the British people also. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's quite clear that you have you know European way of looking at things, at values that is different from, for instance, the United States. And maybe the UK has a special relationship with the United States, that is true, of course, it's you know, also history. Mm -hmm. But I think they also have a special relationship with the rest of Europe, and that will remain. So it will for sure be interesting to watch what the UK does post-Brexit and how it's going to execute its global Britain policy that UK diplomats told us about in our episode on Britain's consul presidency in October. Support for Unscripted comes from the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. This spring, they're offering online humanitarian training courses. Topics include cash, commodities, and services in a humanitarian response, managing or negotiating humanitarian responses, and more. Courses run from March 16th through April 25th or earn an international diploma in humanitarian assistance. It's a four-week intensive taught by practicing humanitarian professionals in New York City from May 31st through June 27th. For more information, email miha at fordham.edu. But going back to Belgium, it's really the country's time to shine in February for their one and only presidency during their two-year term. And here's how the ambassador plans to do so. We tried not to overload the program, especially since February is also it's already a short month, mm -hmm. but to have uh, quite a few important issues that are really close to our hearts. We will have uh, several what we call signature events uh, during our presidency. The first one will be on children and armed conflict. Mm -hmm. This is uh, really a big priority of our presence in the Council. Mm -hmm. We chair the working group of the Security Council on children and armed conflict. And we wanted also to have this issue not only in the working group, mm -hmm. but also in the Council itself as a priority and as a cross-cutting issue in the work of the Council. This important session it's going to be a high-level event with our foreign minister chairing it, but even our king, the king of the Belgians, will be there and he will make the statement on behalf of Belgium. So that is going to be a very special moment, I think, in the council. The second one will be on transitional justice. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a little bit a new issue in the council. Yes. The Council, of course, has al already addressed uh, transitional justice, but a bit in an indirect way. I think this will be the first time that we address it as a team. And the idea is really to have a general debate and see how can transitional justice contribute 
also to peace building after a conflict in a, in a, in a post-conflict phase. And this will be an open debate, so we will welcome you know, participation from other countries uh, which are not on the Council mm-hmm. to also give their own experience with that. So this will be chaired also by our foreign minister. And then finally, our third event will be towards the end of the month and will be a briefing by the new high representative of the EU, of the European Union, um, Mr. Joseph Borrell, on the cooperation between the UN and the EU. And this is a really important relationship, really. It's a strategic, um, you know, cooperation mm-hmm. on so many issues, uh, so many, you know, country situation, operations. So I think that will be very important. Uh, yeah, so these will be the three main uh, events, but of course there will be much more. But I don't know if you want to hear uh, all about it. Uh. <laughs> Stephanie, another issue you discussed with the ambassador is the question of radicalization in prison. Yes, Belgium co-sponsored a meeting on the matter in November. And as you know, radicalization in prison is an issue that affects many European countries, such as France, Belgium and the UK. And they've been trying to address it with mixed results. Just take the recent attack in the UK. It was labeled a terrorist attack and was perpetrated by an individual who had been released from jail recently. And it's the second of its type in a few months. And with the rush to repatriate foreign fighters from ISIS, fighting the right approach is important for countries like Belgium. So I asked the ambassador what the UN is doing to fight radicalization in prison globally. And what's next? Well, this meeting we organized was really drawing on experience in Belgium because we realized that maybe not all but many of uh, the terrorists um, in Belgium actually radicalized in prison and very rapidly which is Mm -hmm. you know quite um, surprising many of them were just you know small criminals I would say you know committing petty crimes and things like that so up they land in in jail and there shoops in a few months you know they're radicalized and that is something we i think all system didn't really see coming mm-hmm. so it's really based on that experience on that realization that we wanted to draw the lessons from that then your question on returnees uh, indeed that that is a big challenge how make sure that we can you know de-radicalize them if possible, uh, avoid that they would uh, radicalize others. This is a very, very big challenge. And I, I think it's very difficult to tackle, but, uh, but we have to do this. That's, that's for sure. Another related topic is Syria, and the council adopted a resolution last month renewing cross-border authorization of humanitarian aid, assisting four million people. Belgium is a co-pen holder on the issue. They worked on a first draft with Kuwait and Germany to maintain four border crossings into Syria, but their proposal was ultimately rejected because of vetoes by Russia and China. The final resolution only authorized two border crossings for a six-month mandate as opposed to one year. And it was a rough battle on the Security Council that started right before Christmas and picked up in early January leaving the council tense until the last minute. So I asked the ambassador if he thought the final result was a failure. 
Well, let me tell you, we would have wished another result that would have, uh, you know, renewed the whole system like it was before, because we think it was justified. And certainly the crossing point with the border of uh, Iraq was still used very much so by the humanitarian agencies. So we thought and we still think that there were strong arguments for keeping this, this crossing point. But Fortunately, the, you know, the result of the negotiation was uh, that it, it wasn't possible. But I think the fact that we were able to reach an agreement on at least continuing the system with two crossing points uh, on the north, so the border with Turkey, mm-hmm. uh, where really people living in this area in the northwest are totally depending on that system for humanitarian assistance. So mm-hmm. that is really a lifeline for them. So it's, it's a question of life or death in a way. And I think the achievement was, although the positions were very tough for, on both sides, that we could get to, to an agreement on that. So not perfect uh, as a result, but at least it is something that, that was very important to reach. But in a way, for the ambassador, this resolution showed that the 10 elected members of the council are not powerless. The resolution passed, keeping two border crossings open. Four permanent members out of five abstained on the vote. Only France voted yes. Well, I think that there are interesting developments with the elected members, the E10, as they are called. We meet regularly, the 10 together. We try to coordinate positions, not on everything, obviously. Uh, there are issues on which we, mm-hmm. we don't all agree. But uh, there are a few where we do agree. And I think, well, the one uh, you just mentioned before, this cross-border mechanism, for instance, is a case where we could have a strong support from the E10. And if you look at the voting, uh, it's quite interesting and I, I don't know if you have many resolutions like that where you see that really the majority, the E10, and without them, you, you would have no resolution. So I think that that was quite interesting. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. okay. <laughs> and that's how the interview voilà. ended. And we happily all started speaking French again. Uh, well, merci, Stéphanie. Merci beaucoup. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, and reported by Stephanie Filion with help from Leontine Galois for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor. AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. 
If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends. 